Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The section here in 1 John chapter 3 began with verse 29 for sure, and possibly even with verse 28, and it runs through the 10th verse of chapter 3. Everybody has a family. You came from somewhere. You inherited your genes, your genetics, your DNA, your characteristics and personality traits from some gene pool from a family. The question then becomes, are you part of God's family or the devil's family here? And that is evidenced by the personality traits that you exhibit. You exhibit those of the family to which you belong. In verse 1, here, take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 that we are children of God, not just servants of God, but we've been adopted. We are loved. We are children. We are part of God's family. We are, however, still works in progress. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 2.9, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and Matthew 5.8. The process of sanctification or growing in grace, maturing as a disciple, is to become more like Jesus. In verse 3, he uses the word hope, and this is the only use of the word hope in all of John's writings, including the gospel, these three short letters, and the revelation. Those who belong to God don't want to sin. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be holy and pure and true. And between verses 4 and 9, The word sin is going to be used 10 times. They're all forms of the Greek word hamartia, the most common word for sin, which means to miss the the mark. It's an archery term for throwing a dart or a spear, and it's to do anything to land anywhere but on the bullseye, the center of the mark. There's also a reference to lawlessness. This is connected to the man of lawlessness that you can read about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. To commit sin is to stand in opposition to Christ. It's to be on the side of the devil. It's to be an antichrist. Those are some strong words for us. In verse 9, it makes a reference to God's seed. And the word in the Greek is sperm. It's sperma auto, or his sperm. Um, And that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how this new birth comes about, how it occurs. Um, Take a look at chapter 2, verse 29. In verse 10, behavior tells the truth of our faith. We don't earn our salvation. We respond to the grace of God and our relationship with God with obedience. It is how we are identified as being part of the family of God, ties this whole section together. Also, if you look again at verse 9, we have the phrase, they cannot sin. Again, like at the very beginning of this book, back in chapter 1, it doesn't mean that we become incapable of doing anything wrong, but it means we don't want to. We cannot continually sin. 
We want to do better. Um, Unrepentant sin that causes us no guilt is evidence that we don't really belong to God. This letter, we know that because this letter has already said that believers will sin. Um, Chapter 1, verse 8, and through chapter 2, verse 2. So if we're concluding that this means means we can do no wrong, anything we do after we saved is okay, then we're coming to a wrong conclusion. We're twisting Scripture. Um, The spiritual life and obedience are two sides of the one coin. You can't have one without the other. In verses 11 through 24, we're told to love one another, and there are two paragraphs to this section. The first paragraph is verses 11 through 17. John now focuses on a particular sin. He's been talking about sin in general. Now he hones in on the sin of failing to love one another. Jesus said that that is, after all, how that people would know that we are his disciples. Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35. In verse 15 here, failing to love others is a form of murder. Now, we saw this back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus takes the root of a sin and says that's how it starts. Um, Adultery starts with lust, so don't lust. Murder starts with holding a grudge. Um, And grudges come because we don't have enough love. You can cross-reference that with Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. But here, failing to love is equated with murdering. If you don't love them, you might as well be be killing them, and you are killing them because you're depriving them of fellowship, of care and nurture that you could provide them. Um, And we need to stop those things before they become to fruition. Verse 16, we aren't supposed to be selfish. We're supposed to be self-giving in our lives, even up to giving our lives as Christ did for others. And so if we're supposed to give our very lives, then it also means we have to be willing to give some of our stuff. Verse 17, John here is absolutely incredulous that one would think they could turn away from another believer in need when they have the ability to meet that need and think that they belong to God. As we move into the second paragraph, verses 18 through 24, Um, Loving like God is putting that love into action. The word used all the way through this book for love is agape love, which is love that backs up that with commitment and wants the best for the one we love. When our heart condemns us, he says, then we have to trust on God's testimony, what God has said about us. Here, the heart means our conscience. When we feel guilty, when we begin to doubt, when we begin to have a crisis of faith, then we cling to the promises of God, to what God has said, that He is faithful to forgive, that we, be- if we believe in Christ and we do our best to follow Jesus, then we belong to God. And when we have those crises of faith, when we doubt, when we have guilt that's unwarranted, then we must choose to trust God, to trust God's word and not our own feelings. What's happening here is the opposite of being hard-hearted and callous. Those who embrace sin and don't care and don't feel any guilt or remorse about it. This is unwarranted guilt, feeling guilty when we probably shouldn't. 
If we follow Jesus faithfully, then we can be bold. We don't have to be timid or afraid before God. So we can ask for things without being frightened of doing so. Because we know that if we are asking something that is wrong, that is out of line with God's will, then God will help us adjust ourselves rather than reject us. In verses 13 and 15, John uses the word brothers here, and it's been translated brothers and sisters in most translations because we believe it would have applied to all believers, not just the male believers. Um, But it is the only place in John's writings where he uses the term brothers. Everywhere else, he refers to the believers as children. In verses 23 and 24, the commandment is to believe, love, and obey. In this section right here between verses 11 and 23, we've had the word love seven times, and it's all forms of the word agape. Moving into verse 4, verses 1 through 6, we're told to test the spirits. Believers have to discern whether prophecies are true or false. Spiritual insight that denies Jesus as a historical human reality in this case, also as divinity, um, are not from God. If, if you say Jesus was not human, because that was one of the heresies of the time, that Jesus wasn't actually human. He was an apparition or a spirit. He looked human, but he wasn't really human. And the, everyone here is testifying to say, no, no, Jesus was actually a real living human being, not just a spirit or a specter. And anyone who says he wasn't, well, that didn't come from God. John is assuring the believers that they have overcome or conquered those who would say such things, those who deny Jesus, who deny that he was the Messiah, the rest of the people in the world. Um, They may be well-spoken. They may be persuasive when they're pitching this idea to you. But if they are denying of Christ, it doesn't matter how fancy their speech is or how persuasive. You can know that they are false. Uh, check out 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 for more along that line. As we move into verses 7 through 21, he talks about God is love. 1 John started with God is light. Now God is also love. And this love is revealed in Jesus Christ and in Jesus' self-sacrifice, which becomes a model for us. Someone who is without love is also without God. That's a hard statement, um, but he repeats it in a number of different ways, saying it in the positive and the negative. If you love, you're of God. If you don't love, you're not of God. Love is the mark of belonging to Christ. Now, there is love outside of the Christian faith. But love falls well short of all it could be if God in Christ is not the supreme object and the recognized source of love. All of God's actions are loving. Um, Verses 13 through 16, we have another picture of the Trinity, God, Jesus, and the Spirit. In verse 12, he says that no one has seen God That would be except for Jesus, who is part of the Godhead and would have seen God. What he's saying is, we don't see a physical God, like God doesn't appear to us 
on, on a regular basis. We see God in Jesus. And now we see echoes of God in one another. In verses 7 through 12, we have the word love, a form of agape, 13 times. We also have two more times where he uses the word beloved in verse 7 and verse 11. And that is also a form of the word, Greek word for love, agape. Basically, he's saying, you who are agape, you who are loved unconditionally. Okay. Um, Verse 14, he says um, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. John has already asserted this in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 42. In verse 16, the first sentence ends the paragraph, and the second sentence is the beginning of the next one. Um, But God is love. That sentence is probably the beginning, most likely, of the new section as we continue with verses 17 through 21. If we abide in God and we do all we can to be faithful and true, um, which is evidenced by our love, then there's no reason for us to be afraid of God. We will not get it right all the time, but a true and sincere effort will be accepted by God. In verse 18, it's one of my favorite sentences in the Bible that perfect love casts out fear. Here is the basis of the Wesleyan doctrine of perfection, that we can be perfected in love. Love for God and fear of God cannot coexist. Uh, Check out Romans 8.15. Now, this is not fear in the sense of reverence or awe, a holy reverence, an appropriate measure of um, authority that replies our compliance. This is a fear, a terror. The Greek word phobos occurs here for fear. It's We get the word phobia from it. So it is um, a panic that makes us want to flee or a terror. And so love for God and terror of God can't coexist. Verse 20, we aren't allowed to hate others. We revisit this theme again. Um, we can hate evil, but we cannot hate people. Um, hatred is absolutely disallowed for us. Between verses 16b and the end of verse 21, the word love is used 13 more times. The main instrument we see here that God uses to bring us back to himself is not fear of punishment. It's love. God woos us with love, and that's how we woo the world to God, is with our love. Not our fear, not our conquering, but our love. Verse 17 mentions a day of judgment. That was a reference to the second coming of Jesus. Um, As he is, the phrase, we are as he is, is another reference to the fact that Jesus is hated by the world but belong to God. We too can be hated by the world and belong to God. Verse 21, this love that we're supposed to exhibit is a command. It's not optional. We move into chapter 5, the final chapter of this letter or sermon. We see love of God, trust in Jesus, and obedience to the Spirit as being the holy trinity of discipleship. The trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the love of God The trust we place in Jesus and obedience to how the Spirit leads us is how we mature and how we walk faithfully with Christ.
In verses 1 through 5, we see that faith conquers the world. If we love God, we love Jesus, and we love other believers. And that is to love the child. Jesus is the child of God. Other believers are the children of God. We have to see others as children of God that we are not allowed to hate or to be mean to. They are members of our family. In verse 3, His commandments are not burdensome. If you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's because the guiding principle, the yoke, is love, what leads us and keeps us on the right path. It's not a long list of rules or a long a a number of rituals we must perform. Just do the loving thing. That's how you follow me. Just do the loving thing. Verses 6 through 12 talks about the testimony to the validity of the Son of God. Verse 6 talks about water and blood. Now, there are a lot of ways that water and blood could be seen. Water may refer to his human birth and blood to his death. Um, Water could also be referring to his ministry or work, which began with his baptism in water and blood to his atoning death. Um, At his crucifixion, you remember he was pierced by a spear and blood and water flowed. So there's a lot of references to blood and water. I believe it refers to his ministry from baptism in water to death by the shedding of blood, because it's going to refer to the testimony of God, which was the voice at his baptism in verse 10. In verse 7, there are several variations here in the manuscripts. The majority of them here refer to the spirit, the water, and the blood. However, there are some manuscripts who say there are three in heaven that bear witness, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And there are three on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood that testify. Um, In verse 9, human testimony in the Hebrew courts required two witnesses. But now we have three. We have three witnesses. And we arrive at verse 10, where God's testimony uh, came at Jesus' baptism, where the voice said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. The testimony also comes through Scripture, as well as through the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 through 21 are an epilogue. Verse 13 speaks of really of assurance, of knowing that you belong to God again. And our ability to not doubt that we truly belong to God. John Wesley struggled with this as well. And I've always wondered if it might have been a sign that he had a mental health issue. We have no way of knowing that for certain. But we all do sometimes struggle. We may have moments of doubt. Knowing that we belong to God lies not with keeping rules and engaging in rituals. It doesn't lie with never making a mistake. And it does not lie from possessing a particular spiritual gift, such as speaking in tongues. Knowing that we belong to God is if we love. We love because He loves through us, and that love flows through us. If we aren't filled with God, or if we are filled with love, then we can be confident that we belong to God. Now, this doesn't just mean that we're good people. We also have to confess Jesus 
this is not a denial of the fact that we have to believe that Jesus is who Jesus said he was and who God says he was and is and who the Spirit says he was and is. But the mark that we have believed that and experienced that and become part of God's family and the kingdom of God is if we're loving. In verse 14, when we abide in God, we become more like Jesus. We learn to hear the voice of the Spirit and we align ourselves with God's will. Therefore, when we ask for something, we will ask in keeping with what God wants, and we will receive the joy of seeing that occur. This letter opened with John declaring that God forgives sin, and it ends with instructions to pray for those believers who are sinning. In verse 17, it affirms that all wrongdoing is sin, but all of that sin is not mortal or one that leads to death, particularly spiritual death for us. Um, The sin that is dangerous is the sin that is conscious sin. We know it is sin, and we are unrepentant. So it is unrepentant, conscious sin that will lead to our undoing. We belong to God, but the world still belongs to the evil one. It will remain so until Jesus returns, and we, because of Jesus, know how it should be. We know how the world was created to be and how it will be again one day, how it would have been all along if we had not rebelled and rejected God's authority way back in the garden. So we live in that way, and we invite others to do so now, even until it is realized in its fullness when Jesus returns. Verse 21, I think, is kind of an odd ending. He just says, keep away from idols, and he's done. Um, Again, as we said in the beginning, it doesn't have any of those salutations, those greetings that are part of a typical letter. So it supports the assertion that this was probably a written sermon rather than a true letter. We have seen here in this book of 1 John that there are three characteristics of Christians. There is the possession of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There is a confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and there is living in the love of God. It is a Trinitarian existence there. And that is this little book of First John. Oh, 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 oh,